0: Behind the Noise, with Adam Bornstein, Behind the Noise, Behind the Noise.
1: Episode 3, the Behind the Noise podcast. I'm your host, Adam Bornstein. It's Monday, February 17th, 2020. Welcome. I hope you all had a good weekend. I'm back in Addis Ababa after a week in Kenya working with the Community Inclusion Currency Team which is a blockchain project providing liquidity to at-risk communities. Today's podcast looks at the relationship between pandemics, viral epidemics such as the coronavirus and migration. Our special guests are Dr. Aaron Sorrell and Dr. Claire Stanley from Georgetown University. Both Aaron and Claire are founding members of Georgetown's Center for Global Science and Security and experts in infectious disease, health system strengthening, biohazards, and migration. We recorded this podcast on Friday, and since then there have been some updates on the coronavirus, including, unfortunately, Taiwan's first fatality, a taxi driver who also had Hep B. This brings the number of fatalities outside of China to a total of five. Total number of deaths that have happened so far about 1,800. The total number of individuals who have been infected, about 70,000. Also in the news, Egypt identified its first coronavirus patient, which would also happen to be Africa's first. The media has been dropping copious amounts of information about the coronavirus on the public. However, there hasn't been much discussion about the impact of viral outbreaks on the nearly 280 million migrants working and living in host countries. So join us, let's get to the heart of the issues, let's get behind the noise. Episode 3 The Danish Red Cross's award-winning innovative finance and systems change team is on the clock 24-7, spinning up and developing scalable, commercially viable and ecosystem-driven solutions and mechanisms for a complex and fluid humanitarian universe. Interested in being inspired? Tweet the team at DRC Innovation.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. And Adam, thanks so much for having us on. Uh, my name is Erin Sorrell, and I'm a faculty member at Georgetown based in Washington, D.C. Um, my background is in virology. Uh, I did a PhD in a number of postdocs looking at the interspecies transmission of avian influenza viruses. Um, and that work really gave me firsthand exposure to outbreak management, seeing the impact of a disease event in a local community and even at the state and regional level, both in the US um, and overseas. Uh, And based on that experience, got me thinking more big picture about biosafety, biosecurity and and disease emergence. Uh, And I was able to um, join a policy fellowship through the American Association of the Advancement of Science or AAAS. Uh, They have a science and technology policy fellowship that place Um, both physicians and um, PhDs in um, science and policy positions across uh, departments and agencies in the U.S. government, Uh, was lucky enough to work at the State Department um, in an office that focused on Emerging pathogens, primarily biosurveillance, biosafety, and biosecurity in relation to those pathogens. Um, And the projects and programs were all uh, internationally focused. And so I was able to spend um, a lot of my time working with partners across sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and North Africa. Um, I was lucky enough to meet Claire in my second year at the State Department. um, And we worked together in a number of countries on some of those efforts. After about three years at the State Department, I decided I was interested in in working on more of the implementation side of this field and joined a team at George Washington University. Uh, And then we all, uh, as a team, uh, created the Center for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University, where we've been since 2016. One of the aspects, I think, of, of infectious disease, particularly emerging and reemerging disease, is thinking about where these diseases occur and how they impact communities um, and countries. And a number of our partners live um, and operate in areas of instability, whether that's lack of governance structures, uh, insecurity, uh, regional proxy issues, and and so I got very interested in thinking about disease emergence and instability based on working with a number of our partners overseas who have done fantastic work um, in low resource settings um, and areas uh, that might have challenges with governance, Um, and so it's a a pleasure to be here this afternoon and looking forward to our chat.
1: So if I could just follow up on something, um, you've spent a lot of time working in fragile um, communities, and with migrants, and I'm wondering if there's been any incidents or examples or situations that have changed your perspective, um, perhaps sparked some new ideas, or have given you insights into a hypothesis or a, a thought that that might have been different before you got to a certain location or or engaged in a certain project.
2: Yes, a number of a, a number of um, I think events. One in particular that stands out to me. Um, is a meeting that actually Claire and I had with a a colleague uh, from Libya. Um, We had plans to meet uh, in Tunisia to discuss um, aspects of building up capacities for the international health regulations, which is a a legally binding framework that looks at building capacities for the uh, prevention detection and response to public health events. Um, And Claire and I got on our flights, we got to Tunis, you know, checked into our, our hotel and didn't think, or I personally did not think about um, the challenges that our partner was facing in terms of even getting uh, to Tunis. Um, at the time, the airport in Tripoli had been closed, and he was able to navigate his way through, uh, through to us in Tunis through a number of taxis, um, vehicles, and I thought about the challenges he faces in just getting to and from meetings and the the dedication that he has to um, advance um, his organization and his country in thinking about uh, prevention of diseases and protecting the public. And, and that, to me, put a lot in perspective um, about what our partners face um, and the... Um, how fortunate we are to live where we are um, and have the capacities we have. And it, it just motivated me, I think, even more to think about how to develop tools and methodologies to be able to improve um, capacities for those countries that may be facing challenges in governance um, and security when when also dealing with emerging and re-emerging uh, disease outbreaks.
1: Thanks, Aaron. That's a really relevant story, especially in the context of today's conversation which is working closely with, with, with partners and communities. Um, and, you know, how can you actually do that if you're not on the ground, if you haven't spent time working in, in, and understanding um, their personal histories and, and some of the barriers that, that they need to overcome in order for successful and collaborative partnerships to thrive. So let's switch gears and, and head over to um, Professor Claire Stanley who I believe is somewhere based in Europe at the moment. If you could please give us some background about yourself and some of your personal experiences that perhaps have changed and influenced uh, your perspective on, on your work.
0: Sure, absolutely. And um, you'll hear a lot of common themes uh, with Erin's description since I've been fortunate to work with her for the last eight years and have uh, followed her from from job to job during that period. So I initially trained as an infectious disease ecologist. So with a background in biology, I was interested in um, host parasite relationships and I've worked on neglected tropical diseases, uh, primarily in East Africa for my PhD and postdoc. Um, And through that work, I I really got interested in the idea of how policy can impact uh, the implementation of health programs on the ground, um, but also the importance of getting robust evidence um, from health programs to inform those policies. So I can cite one specific instance where um, I was working in a small, very rural uh, village in Uganda and realized that the number of times that the children would receive deworming medication in this village completely depended on the results of assessments for the prevalence of of the parasites that we were studying. And so if you happen to get 49%, um, they would get treatment once every two years, and if it was 51%, it would be treatment every year. And so it just really struck me how important it is that we get accurate information, um, that the evidence base is really strong for these types of policy recommendations, and that we continually gather those data to, um, to better improve those policies and also to ensure that they are having the kind of impact that they're, that they're intended to have on the communities that are affected by these diseases. So in any case, at that point, um, wanting to get a little bit more of a grounding in, in policy, I applied to the same uh, fellowship program that Erin that mentioned. And was lucky enough to end up in the same office that she was already in. So I also worked on biosurveillance, biosafety and biosecurity, primarily in Africa and the Middle East. Um, And and while I was there, I was there for two years. And um, towards the end of that time, I had already realized that I wanted to uh, go back into academia, um, upon which time I was, again, recruited by Erin. So went back to, to George Washington University. Um, but towards that, the end of my time at the State Department, the West Africa Ebola outbreak was was really beginning to kick off. And I think that, to me, really emphasized the importance of health system strengthening. And again, Erin alluded already to the challenges faced by, by countries affected by conflict. And I think um, that's also true of countries with a history of fragility. So even if they're not in the face of an active conflict, if they've had... Um, disruptions in the past that can significantly impact the health system and leave them vulnerable to future threats. And so the way that we build capacities or the way that we support technical assistance um, to strengthen uh, those core capacities for prevention, detection, and response to infectious disease threats really has to be done in, in the context of, of the history and, and um, other contextual factors, I think so yeah now i'm at georgetown university i'm an assistant research professor there continuing to work primarily on health systems um, and really um, spending a lot of time thinking about how data can be used for decision making um, while also trying our best to ensure that policies um, when they are implemented have the right kind of impacts on the ground um, and working so working from both um, stakeholders on the ground, as well as the, the national, regional and, and sometimes global decision makers too.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so Claire, as a follow-up, when SARS broke in 2003, I was in Hong Kong and on my way to business school in, in Kobe, Japan. And I was told by the administration that if I went directly to Kobe from Hong Kong, I'd have to sit in quarantine for a fortnight. So I went to Manila for a few days and eventually ended up in, in Kobe in, instead and, uh, while I, uh, avoided quarantine because I, I, um, had my last stamp was from Manila, my other, um, Taiwanese and, and Chinese classmates, um, were sent into uh, quarantine. So I didn't think about, about, I didn't think about it much then, but 17 years on, it strikes me that having a specific passport or the ability to, uh, to island hop is a privilege that many migrants and vulnerable communities um, and others just don't have and so you know migration migration's movement and it's some and sometimes this movement disrupts the environment and perhaps natural habitats and at the same time with the abundance of information and photos and video and, and media being shared across different types of social media and news outlets it can be really challenging to decipher fact from fiction. And so, um, Claire, my question to you, I guess, as a follow up would be, you know, are viral outbreaks like this coronavirus becoming more frequent or are we just more aware of it because of media?
0: I think it's a combination of things. I think we're certainly having the, the density of the human population and our encroachment into previously um, less disturbed animal habitats is definitely changing the the interface between humans and wildlife, in particular, and that's certainly leading to the emergence of of new uh, new infectious diseases and particularly viral diseases. Um, that being said, I think that I don't think that there's necessarily Uh, more individual spillover events happening all the time. Um, We have better transportation networks and particularly we have better surveillance systems. So we know about these outbreaks. I think previously there would be events that would happen in rural areas and and unfortunately people would die, but the world wouldn't know about them. And I think that's where your point about the media is really important as well. Um, Now that we have global news cycles, Um, An outbreak in any corner of the world can rapidly become a global phenomenon and couple that to global transport networks, and you really do have um, an interconnected world where diseases know no borders.
1: Thanks, Claire. I wanted to pick up on your comment that disease know no borders, but I want to relate this to the idea that infectious diseases are fluid and and complex. And I understand that health agencies have models that can estimate or, or forecast um, the basic reproduction number of a, a pathogen's transmission rate. But it seems like agencies may not be on the same page or forecast. So for instance, uh, a few days back, CDC director Dr. Um, Rob Redfield said that coronavirus is probably with us beyond the season, beyond this year. And yet a day or so later, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine came out and said that the coronavirus has likely peaked by mid-February. And we're in mid-February, but we also know that, you know, it's now topping 70,000 cases in China. So, Aaron, earlier you mentioned the importance of understanding the the barriers for our partners to kind of be successful. And in this case, I'm wondering, what are the barriers to get organizations in onto the same model for them to be looking at the same data or being able to use multiple data sets? And I, and I think about this in terms of, you know, how do we plan uh, for vulnerable communities and what models would we be using to think, think in terms of care and um, prevention?
2: So I think what we're seeing with the different models is that there are three main options for this virus. The first would be Um, complete containment. Uh, We're able to uh, really understand the transmission of this virus um, and effectively contain the spread. The second option is looking at a potential seasonal uh, epidemic similar to what we see with seasonal influenza, where the virus peaks in the winter months um, and tends to die down in the spring and summer months. Uh, The third option would be continued spread, continued transmission. And I think that's what we're seeing with the the various models across the London School, CDC, and others. Um, I think what's important to consider with this particular outbreak, the the COVID-19, is that it's evolving. Uh, We're getting more and more information every day. Um, And the important thing is is to make decisions based on the information we have and understand that those models and the data may get updated on a a daily and sometimes even hourly basis uh, so getting more and more information about the transmission um, will will help inform the models for the potential of a um, more seasonality or a slowdown of this particular outbreak versus uh, the potential uh, continuation of cases, uh, both in Southeast Asia and uh, global.
1: Claire, do you want to add anything to um, the comment around data and forecasts?
0: Yeah, just a quick word on you know, I think it's important to remember that the parameters that are used in these models can be highly sensitive to the data that's going in. And so Aaron mentioned, you know, that that different um, control scenarios will have a big impact. And so I think a, a good example just to reflect back on is during, again, during the West Africa Ebola outbreak, the CDC released a model um, towards the end of 2014 that suggested that cases could reach over a million if uh, current containment um, practices continued. Um, In the end, of course, we saw many, many, many fewer than that. There were actually less than 30,000 confirmed cases in the end. And again, you know, it's not that the modelers are trying to use scare tactics or overestimate, but there are large ranges often in these estimates. And I think we just need to be a little bit careful with how we interpret the numbers and and particularly how the media sometimes reports on the outer edges of these projections.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. Coming from a humanitarian background and the fact that I live in Ethiopia, it's my perspective that Africa can be characterized by a high degree of population movement across highly porous borders. I think a recent study from UNHCR estimated that the population mobility in West Africa, for example, is roughly seven times higher than anywhere else in the world. Essentially, poverty drives this mobility as people travel daily looking for food and and for work. It helps when the countries they go to have the right to work, but that's probably a different conversation. So we've touched on this question a bit, but would you mind going a bit deeper on the impact that epidemics and pandemics have on, on migrants?
2: Sure, thank you. You know, I think there are a lot of aspects of thinking about um, migration both within a country and then uh, across borders, um, particularly in in terms of uh, access to healthcare. When we think about um, the health risks for many migrants, A lot of times migrants can even be viewed as a security threat, no matter what their health status is, Um, particularly when we're looking at cross-border migration uh, for employment for uh, a number of factors. And so sometimes they don't access care even when it's available, and that becomes uh, quite a challenge, um, particularly in this case when we're looking at um, an emerging uh, disease uh, that has implications for um, spread through human migration, human movement. Um, we know that one of the major routes for transmission, particularly when we're looking at global spread of this COVID-19 is through human travel, um, and human interaction. And so, um, I think understanding access to care for migrants, um, and availability to care for that community is quite important. Um, when we look at the kind of perfect storm of timing in this uh, epidemic, and we think about the migrant community within China that have um, potentially traveled for uh, family celebrations in the Lunar New Year, this was a a perfect storm in terms of timing for um, having a, a lot of travel within even the country. Um, families getting together to celebrate the new year Um, and understanding that a number of travel restrictions that were put into place um, occurred well after uh, travel occurred within the country and then uh, globally as well. Um, And so thinking about the potential implications of of access to care to that migrant population uh, is definitely uh, something that should be on um, everyone's radar and a concern.
1: Earlier, we talked a little bit about um, the impact of media and um, perhaps some sensationalism around the coronavirus and other pandemics. Um, Every day, it feels like there's another uh, media story that drops, uh, introducing a different twist or another country that may have new or additional cases. Japan's no difference. Lately, Japan's been in the news around the Diamond Princess cruise ship, which is in Yokohama Harbor. They announced today that another 99 uh, new coronavirus cases have been confirmed, and this is from a ship where people are in quarantine. So the the total now comes out to around 450. But what's interesting about Japan is that over the weekend, they also announced that an individual who has had no contact with the cruise ship or with China actually has come down with um, the coronavirus as well. And so what I'm wondering is, does this suggest that a patient can be a carrier but experience no symptoms? And if so, how does this impact health systems in host countries? They're dealing with um, a lot of mobility and with refugees and with migrants, as well as dealing with their own um, citizens who are probably just as mobile, whether it be through cars or, or
2: airplanes. Um, I think one of the challenging things with this particular outbreak is that we're learning about what we call um, asymptomatic. Uh, patients and asymptomatic transmission, uh, which means that we have individuals who are um, infected but they aren't presenting clinically, uh, and so they are not seeking treatment. They're not getting tested, um, and that can present a risk if they're infectious enough to transmit to other people in close contact. Um, and so I think there is um, an interest and an initiative to look at how best to um, consider uh, these individuals that may not present or be ill enough to seek treatment that could be at risk for um, exposing other individuals. Um, and that may come into play when we look at cases particularly that don't have direct links to those that are um, infected. So if there, if we can't draw a direct link, it may be um, implications for individuals who are not um, clinically presenting um, with uh, the what we consider the case definition for COVID nineteen, Claire, I don't know if you have anything to add.
0: Yeah, I think I'd just say that again with global transport, you know, we we talk about migrants, but but it's also just people who are traveling for business or for other things. And I think um, we, as Erin mentioned, you know, we're we're learning a lot more about the people who may only have mild symptoms and so aren't seeking treatment and may be infectious. Um, And I think, you know, Singapore again today also reported a couple of cases that don't have known links to other transmission chains. So this is going to keep happening. And I think particularly as we start seeing more of these clusters outside of China, direct links to China are going to become less common, potentially, particularly with the travel restrictions that we're seeing currently in place from China. So I don't think this is unexpected and and I don't think it's necessarily wildly concerning from an epidemiological perspective. It's just what we would expect to happen as we start to learn more about the virus, as some of these new um, cases are uncovered. And particularly with the relatively long incubation period, we're seeing people who um, may have up to 14 days completely asymptomatic and yet able to transmit the disease. So it's, again, it's not unexpected that we're going to be seeing cases popping up without a known link to China.
1: Back in uh, 1993, I was a, a student at Nankai University in Tianjin. And we had um, many, many African uh, students. And also at Tienda, which was Tianjin University next door. But what had happened is that a lot of these African students had been um, stuck in China, uh, particularly when their governments collapsed. And throughout my years in China, I would occasionally run into um, a few of them in, in random places. And I guess in that context, I'm I'm interested in knowing um, what would be what would be your opinion around the evolving dynamics between Africa and China, and and again in, in the context of you know what this might mean for for migrants and and cross border mobility.
0: Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll talk a little bit just about the relationship, and then I think Erin can can maybe jump in with some of the specific measures that are being put in place in Africa to prepare. So I think just one thing to to note, and and a lot has been written about this already, is that there is quite a lot of traffic, um, human traffic and commercial traffic between Africa and and China. And that's been growing over the last, say, 10, 20 years. Um, A lot of media attention has been put on the African students that have been, you know, quote unquote, trapped in China. Um, There's something like 80,000 in the country as a whole with something like 5,000 in Wuhan. Um, with limited amounts of support um, from their from their, um, their uh, countries of citizenship in some cases. Um, but I think it's also worth noting that there's a large number of other types of African migrants, particularly commercial migrants, um, with Guangzhou in, in southern China being a particular hotspot. Um, the numbers aren't as high as they were maybe a few years ago, but some estimates are um, up to uh, hundreds of thousands, potentially, of Africans living in China. And I think one thing that's important to note is that their access to health services may sometimes be quite limited. So, um, for example, um, there have been some studies that show that they have limited access to health insurance, um, Chinese national health care reform over the last um, years has not included consideration of migrant health needs. China, I think it's worth mentioning, has one of the lowest immigration rates in the world. So it's not necessarily something that's a priority on a national level or hasn't been a priority in the past. Um, and other studies have shown barriers from social isolation of Africans living in China, perceptions of racism or discrimination, and difficulties with the language. All that to say that. I think one of the things that we need to think about is the extent to which Africans living in China may be able to access health services if they start to feel ill um, and the extent to which they would be treated the same as as Chinese or or others living in China um, if they did present with symptoms. Um, So I think that's something to, to think about. And then conversely, just to add, there's also a large number of Chinese working in Africa. Um, again, the numbers vary and, and official counts are hard to come by, but it could be as many as, as a million across the continent as a whole. And so when we're talking about that level of traffic, again, we need to think a little bit about um, access to health care and health-seeking behavior. And I think it's worth noting that um, studies have shown of, of Chinese workers in Africa that they're very unlikely to utilize uh, national health services in the country that they're living in. They're much more likely to self-medicate using medicine from China, Or to visit a Chinese traditional um, medicine practitioner. And so I think just from a public health perspective, what's interesting there is understanding the extent to which a a country in Africa might actually even be aware of symptomatic people in their country. It may take some time before that person um, does present to a hospital or for the traditional medicine practitioner to provide the information to the national health authorities. So While I think Africa is doing a great job to to prepare for for COVID-19, and again, Aaron will talk a little bit more about that in a second, um, I do think that there's some interesting anthropological questions about the extent to which some of those cases might actually be picked up um, and whether there's more that can be done to engage the Chinese community to ensure that there is robust surveillance um, and and early detection as possible.
1: Mm -hmm. And um, does culture play a role?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly culture has a huge impact when it comes to a lot of these types of things. And and certainly just, you know, uh, you've alluded to this a little bit. I think that a lot of care needs to be taken. And this is a global thing, um, not to um, use COVID-19 as an excuse for discrimination or or racism of any kind. And I think we're seeing worrying signs of that um, in Europe and the U.S. and, And presumably that's also the case in Africa as well, where I think there is sometimes a difficult relationship between um, Chinese workers uh, living there and, and the host communities of the country in which they're living. So certainly, we, we don't want to see that um, be a side effect of this type of outbreak. Um, yes, I think you know, culturally speaking, the way that people seek access for care, the the way that they um, choose to treat themselves, the level of trust they have in the medical system—all of these are factors um, that feed into the transmission rate. And again, I think coming back to your, your projections and the modeling question. Because that changes from country to country, the R naught value, the, the reproductive basic reproductive number of this virus is going to not be the same in one place versus another. And that, of course, also makes projections really
2: difficult to get right.
1: Thanks, Claire. Over to you, Erin, if you have any additional thoughts.
2: Sure, happy to. Um you know, I think along the lines of thinking about the the risk of COVID-19 on the African continent, I think it's important to note that while from a WHO perspective, um, Afro is the only region that has not had uh, a case, um, there really haven't been cases reported in South America um, or in um, Africa. So there at least are two, two um, continents that have not had cases uh, imported yet. Um, I would say that, as as Claire mentioned, it's just a matter of time considering the exchange of of people um, both between Africa and China. Um, And Africa CDC has actually activated their emergency operations center in early February. Um, And what they're doing is thinking about taking lessons learned from other um, disease outbreaks to think about how they can look at um, prevention and control of cases. Um, and as as you mentioned in your travels between um, Ethiopia and Kenya, the the screening of passengers coming in and out of flights, um, as well as um, individual precautions for the prote- the prevention of spread, um, are things that uh, a number of of countries um, are looking at. Um, There are procedures in place in um, major hubs across the continent to screen passengers. There are about 16 labs um, in Africa that have been trained to run the basic diagnostic test for COVID-19. And I believe to date, Africa CDC has indicated that there have been Uh, 16 people that have been identified as um, persons under investigation, all of which have tested negative for COVID-19. So that's some good news. Um, And a number of other labs are being trained on that diagnostic test as well. So the capacity to be able to test samples in country is is key and crucial for uh, a quick response. Um, Building that surge capacity um, in the laboratories in Africa is is critical. Um, there are going to be sixteen. I'm sorry, six reference labs that will be able to confirm uh, these diagnostic tests, and that's important on the continent. Um, and Africa is taking lessons learned from other outbreaks and other capacities. The influenza surveillance network and and specimen referral system is going to be implemented for COVID 19. So uh, not recreating. Um, uh, not creating something from scratch, but looking at the systems at work and how to apply these systems to this uh, ongoing outbreak. Um, and I think one of the important things is the infection prevention control training for healthcare workers. Uh, you mentioned the the use of face masks um, from a, a citizen perspective. Um, and I think that is um, an important aspect to think about communication of how best to prevent uh, transmission and prevent exposure. Uh, the use of face masks can be quite a challenging um, process. Um, not only can it um, elicit a reaction to people who view others wearing them, but it also can actually create a false sense of security. Um, the face masks that a number of people use, the surgical face masks, are not going to be very effective in preventing Um, infection, um, and many times can actually be worn improperly. Uh, Face masks should really be used for those individuals who are already sick um, and really um, used for healthcare workers. Um, And so I think it's important that um, we are communicating effectively the best modes of prevention, um, hand washing, social distancing, not touching our face and hands. Um, Those are important aspects for prevention that I think Africa CDC will pick up on and and hopefully communicate out to to everyone um, with this um, uh, preparations for what I think we all agree is uh, the eventual identification of a case of Covid um, on the continent.
1: I know we're nearing the uh, top of the hour, and we've been at this for about forty minutes, plus I promised a twenty minute conversation. Um, So I'm grateful for for the time that you've given uh, myself and, and the listeners. If you have any final thoughts or comments, we'd love to hear them.
0: I think just one final thing to say is that, you know, um, increasingly we're seeing that countries are starting to think about including migrants in their national health preparedness and response plans when it comes to infectious diseases. And that's something obviously that we highly encourage and I think um, is a model that that really needs to be taken up more. So Sri Lanka, for example, uh, recently did explicitly include migrants in one of their national health plans. and given the number of migrants we see worldwide and given that they're a growing proportion of the global population, I think it's just critical for global health security that that
2: it isn't an overlooked population when it comes to health. I would agree with everything that Claire mentioned. And I think what's important to um, consider are the positive impacts that a migrant community can have on the host country. Um, I would say across um Economic well-being, social um, improvements as well as even health um, I think a lot of times migrant communities are looked at as a, a threat and a risk in terms of the importation of diseases where uh, honestly the migrant communities can actually positively impact better health practices, healthier environments healthier communities and so thinking about um, the the positivity of, of migrant populations um, in their host communities. um, And the role they have for um, improving health security, I think is an important aspect to consider as well.
1: Once again, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you for having us. Likewise, thank you.
1: If you're interested in more information about the research that Claire and Erin conduct, you can go to the Center for Global Health Science and Security at um, Georgetown University's website. I'll also post up the um, web links on the webpage And if you're interested in more information about the Danish Red Cross, the Innovation and Systems Change team, you can check out our Twitter at DRC Innovation or my Twitter account, which is Adam Bornstein. Have a great day and thanks for joining Behind the Noise with Adam Bornstein. Episode three. If you don't know, now you know. The Danish Red Cross's award-winning innovative finance and systems change team is on the clock 24-7, spinning up and developing scalable, commercially viable and ecosystem-driven solutions and mechanisms for a complex and fluid humanitarian universe. Interested in being inspired? Tweet the team at DRC Innovation.